for me, the goal was to build a massively scalable, great business, but also to make a huge impact on the world. I kind of, you know, when studying the industry, I felt like there was a lot of pain and mistrust between everyone in the healthcare space. It felt like there was just like this uh, thin layer on top of everything where there was this like, like antagonism between clinicians and where they worked and the patients and the clinicians. And I, you know, I, I felt like that was a big opportunity as a broad theme. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. If you're in a healthcare space, you're probably here because you want to help people. An interesting part of what we do here at the Health Technology Podcast is as entrepreneurs, what is the best way to help? Guy Friedman, the co-founder and CEO of SteadyMD, has his answer by making telehealth more streamlined. SteadyMD is a technology company and healthcare platforms that offers telehealth service in all 50 states. And today, we talk about how entrepreneurs like him, and maybe you, are doing their part to improve medicine. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Guy. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, and so I'm very excited to have you. It's a lot of great work that you've done, accomplished so far. And I thought it would be good to uh, maybe give everybody a little bit understanding about who you are, what's your background, uh, what get you excited about your journey and what took you to where you are today. Sure, absolutely. So uh, starting from the beginning, I was born in Los Angeles. I went to school at uh, Tufts University in Boston, worked for a bit, um, got my MBA. And after my MBA, I launched my first startup in the ed tech space. It was actually an early platform for something called online proctoring. So when you take a remote exam for a college or university, we'd observe you over the webcam while you took the test so you couldn't cheat on your finals or midterms for all the remote students out there. Um, I did a full entrepreneurial round trip with that startup. We raised a small amount of capital. I had an exit. And then after a few years of working for the company that acquired me, I found myself really kind of fascinated and interested in healthcare, specifically applying this idea around scheduled video appointments, telehealth, you know, to uh, uh, to, to to the future of healthcare and, and impacting it in that way. So I took about six months off in between startups, um, really studied the market, got obsessed and interested in primary care, uh, really focused on the idea around enhancing trust between the patient and the clinician. Uh, hooked up with my co-founder and we started in late 2016, early 2017, a business that's different from our business today. We started a direct-to-consumer virtual primary care business. So our twist on virtual primary care was we were going to be like concierge medicine, where we charge a pretty high monthly fee. We charge $99 a month, but you got unlimited access to this really bespoke, great clinician. So we built all these tools and technology around that concept, the ability to um, match with a clinician based on your interests, your fitness, your goals, your health status. Um, we learned how to recruit, manage, and maintain a large clinician network in all 50 states. 
built technology to connect the patient experience to the clinician experience. That's all your intake form integration, chat, video calls, you name it. All the back office clinical protocols around prescriptions, labs, referrals, anything the patient needed nationwide, we were doing it <laughs> with, mm-hmm. our, with our team here. And then underneath it all was this regulatory framework in all 50 states. So anyone, any one of your listeners that runs a digital health company understands the pain of building up a 50-state clinician workforce as well as the regulatory side. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to early 2020, you saw this groundswell of innovation in digital health. And all the companies kind of had the same problem, which was we need a clinician ready to go, trained on our protocol and platform, licensed in the state where the patient lives. And that moment was incredibly difficult for all these companies to achieve in short order. So we started to get some signals from the market that what we had built, the infrastructure layer we had built, would be really valuable to the industry. So after a few projects, we pivoted the whole company to this idea around being a 50-state on-demand clinician network for digital health and building all the products and technology around that. So mm-hmm. you have this idea where every single digital health company had the same problem as us. They had demand coming in from different states at different times and then a clinician workforce licensed in different states available at different times. And that marrying those two is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem we're tackling for many companies in digital health where they plug into our network and platform, they integrate with our system, and they get access to a group of um, clinicians in every single state that can see their patients. So we do everything from lab orders, device orders, your typical normal sick visit, urgent care, to virtual primary care and beyond, as well as mental health and therapy. So you become more like a plug and play for different providers. Yeah. All all the digital health companies that you can imagine Mm -hmm. all have the same problem. Mm -hmm. They all need capacity. And so that's very difficult to achieve on your own and also not your core mission or product. Um, No matter what condition you're targeting, your real focus is on acquiring customers, whether that's a system, a payer, consumer, or whatever else. And building an amazing patient experience and clinician experience. It's not the infrastructure required to have a clinician available at the time trained on your protocol. That's a whole nother cost of doing business that it's much easier to plug into a company like SteadyMD than build on your own. So that's mm-hmm. where we play. Um, uh, an analogy would be like an AWS. You can maintain and build servers in your office to keep your website up, or you can just plug into this. Mm-hmm. the system that allows you to grab capacity. So we are that system for a lot of the digital health industry. Oh, that's cool. And maybe, I, I know, before we dive deeper on sure. your current uh, uh, business, I want to start a little bit from your beginning. You were saying that it took you six months to, you know, you, you just one day woke up, like, I'm interested in healthcare. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, walk through a bit about your process well, it's actually interesting. Um, a lot of former ed tech entrepreneurs go into healthcare. Mm, why is that? Uh, we love punishment and pain in highly regulated environments, I guess. <laughs> so um, I think, no, uh, joking aside, um, obviously, like for me, the goal was to build a massively scalable, great business, but also to make a huge impact on the world. I kind of, you know, when studying the industry, I felt like there was a lot of pain and mistrust between 
everyone in the healthcare space. It felt like there was just like this uh, thin layer on top of everything where there was this like, like antagonism between clinicians and where they worked and the patients and the clinicians. And I, you know, I, I felt like that was a big opportunity as a broad theme. And so um, that I kind of got obsessed with this idea that we've lost trust. And without that trust, uh, it's very hard to take care of people and very hard to operate as a clinician and hard for patients to trust the system. And it's just, um, and so that, that was the root of it all over those six months, kind of looking at the industry. And then uh, I think my process was just, um, you know, come up with my list of ideas that I think would be interesting and then try and validate, obviously, the market. And if it's a good business idea, and then also just like the passion behind it. So um, I had a lot of ideas that were launched by other founders, which I love because I get to see if they actually worked, you know, because, but, but they weren't going to be my life's mission to, to uh, execute on. So um, you want to have an idea that's scalable, great business, but also one that you're obsessed with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's what that's, so I kind of became obsessed with this idea and been running with it ever since. Through your study or through you know your research, you yeah. say that there's a lot of that missing the trust. And why do you think that happened? And why do you think what you're doing can restore that trust? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, beyond the, um, I think a lot of times you talk to a lot of digital health entrepreneurs, like you probably do. Um, a lot of times they talk about their product, their technology how they save the system money, how they, how they, uh, how they, uh, on paper would be the most efficient way to solve X problem. And then there's two big problems that they don't talk about as much. One is utilization. Like, will people actually use this product? It's designed perfectly. No one doubts that it's amazing, but will people actually use it? That's a big hurdle or will companies actually buy it or will partnerships actually happen? And the second is, can you recruit and maintain a clinician workforce and keep them engaged on this? I think um, I saw like a, the, the root is like treating clinicians like commodities, not letting them have their autonomy, not creating a layer of trust and a culture of trust around like they have feedback and input into your business. I thought that was a big hole kind of in the, in the space. So um, I just noticed it again and again across like many different, you know, conversations with folks in the industry now, you kind of didn't talk about the clinician mm-hmm. as a, so we, in addition to building this like crazy technology product, uh, we also have an opportunity to reinvent what it means to be a clinician. And if, if, uh, you know, if the incentive structure and the culture was misaligned in the brick and mortar world, maybe we can reinvent it for the digital world mm-hmm. uh, in a very positive way. So that's kind of what got me going, um, down that path. And what is that reinvent the physician role? Like, what is that? Yeah, I wish I could tell you. It was like, here's these ten objective measures on a on a checklist, and if we do all these, uh, we do all those. Let's pretend we do all those. Let's assume we pay the clinicians fairly. We have mechanisms for blocking projects that they don't think are like clinically effective. We we do all that. Then it's just about culture and brand and living out your. Uh, living out like a thesis around let's enhance trust with the clinicians between us and them so that they, they want to work with us and that brand is protectable over time. Um, we're not going to outbid, you know, everyone for all the clinician time because it's a market. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, 
you think about fairness, trust, autonomy, and a lot of it is more subjective culture stuff that you work on every day versus uh, there's this objective 10-point checklist. If you do all this, you have a culture, a great culture. That's pretty tough. I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, just living it out every day and making sure we're giving patients the best care possible and making sure the clinicians are um, like engaged and satisfied in what they're doing in addition to just being a great job. Okay. So when um, you're t- saying about it's important to get the physician feedback, I'm sure a lot of other company was saying that, well, you know, physician's going to use it, I'm going to get that feedback. How is it different? Uh, a lot of assumptions you have uh, are just not true culturally in the clinician workforce as I've observed it. I don't, I don't have a study of all 2 million clinicians in America. I just know from my own personal experience, things like um, work as much as you think is appropriate so you don't burn yourself out. I mean, the clinicians will work 15 hours a day if patients are in line. It's just culturally, they will not leave a patient. Like You have to design and staff appropriately so that doesn't happen. You can't just say, don't work 15 hours a day. That's not cool because you got burnt out. Right. You know, they're going to, if the patient's on the, in the room, they're going to see them. So in digital health, that can get really overwhelming. Um, things like that. I think I'm designing, we have visits from all different modalities, asynchronous, synchronous, virtual primary care, urgent care, you name it. So I think um, being proactive about mixing those opportunities for a single clinician comes out to a more balanced day than than a, a clinician um, just giving them like the most optimal list of visits. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to sacrifice a little bit of that for balance and culture and burnout. Um, I think there's like things like that. So I think don't just assume like that you can say something and that it'll work. You have to create systems to make sure it doesn't happen. Other, we've had many times clinicians like, I worked 80 hours that week. And we're like, you did? <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, in the early days, we didn't, we didn't think they would do that because the spec was to work 40 hours or 20 or 15, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, <laughs> okay. You know, and um, so I think um, you have to make sure that, obviously make sure that the guardrails are there and that doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't happen now. Uh, yeah. But uh, I think things like that pop up all the time where, you can't just say don't do X or Y if they're intrinsically motivated to take care of patients is, is what, what you're trying to hire for. You have to make sure you put those guardrails up more systemically in your business model. Yeah, I have a friend who are an ER dog and he was saying sometimes like if it's so busy that the bathroom, even getting a bathroom break, that's like a bit too right. far. They can't go. Yeah. So they have that. And it is, I, you know, I, I don't envy them. Right, and then, and then you take you take that personality and put them in in a in a system where they could be just seeing patients twenty four seven, basically. Right. You know, it's right. it's uh, and it's almost like a combination. I think about like I don't know how you work. I know like you know sometimes when you schedule with your calendar, and if you have an administrative uh, executive assistant who can curate it in a way that is balanced compared to somebody who's like somebody who can just jam everything and you feel overwhelmed. It's amazing. Yeah. There's a make of yeah, there's something. Yeah. There's something there. Yeah. I mean, but do it at scale with hundreds of thousands of appointments. Yeah. <laughs> Actually it's better. You have more data so you can, you can figure it out a little easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious now. So if I'm, you know, clinic, uh, clinical 
you know, provider office. Like if I want to bring your technology to my practice. Well, we, we are, we are the clinic. So more, more likely you, you're a clinician and you're interested in working in digital health. Mm-hmm. You sign with SteadyMD. Got it. And then you get access to opportunities across the digital health spectrum. So you could be doing urgent care. You could be ordering labs. You could be doing virtual primary care. Uh, and then you, you're kind of like in our system where you have exposure to all those appointments in the same day. That's so kind of like your, we're like the, the clearinghouse for all the, all the digital health appointments. It's pretty fun and interesting for the clinicians versus working for one digital health company. Um, right now you see some, you know, some of the digital health companies are, are not increasing in volume right now because of whatever the environment. Um, and they're not able to, grow as fast. So those clinicians actually took a lot of risk working for that one digital health company where our clinicians, we just flip them over to the program that is growing. So it's like, it's a little less risky to come work for us in a more interesting, varied day. Plus you get exposure to the same type of appointment. So um, that's kind of our pitch to the clinicians if they want to come uh, work. So if I were freelance clinician, I guess, yeah, you could be working a full time job. You you want to work an extra ten hours a week, right? You you uh you want to work thirty hours a week, whatever you know, whatever fits. And as a patient, then I just like this is uh, something that I signed up for that I want to get all my doctors. No, you know, so we're powering other digital health companies. Mm-hmm. So you might have gone through a workflow and a whole patient experience with another company seeing the clinician and not knowing it was a state and clinician on the back end. So we're in the background. Um, you might have, if you've used telehealth in the last or digital health or ordered a COVID lab or, you know, for one of our clients, you would have seen us without, without most likely without you knowing it was a state clinician. Got it. Sometimes they want us to do, but it's in, it's in the, it's in like the patient agreements and stuff, but the patient doesn't, doesn't mm-hmm. differentiate. Mm-hmm. Okay. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Well, that's really, really cool. And so I know you 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 have your first round with your Proctor uh, company, the Proctor U. And what are the lessons learned from your first go around? And then what are the things that translatable to when you started a steady MD? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I was a solo founder of my first company and it, we never really scaled, you know? So, I mean, we sold the company for a good exit, but I never had the, the number of people I have now. So I think, um, I'd say definitely have a co-founder. Um, when I was a solo founder, I was a big advocate for being a solo founder. I really liked it. And then now I have both experiences. I'd say have a co-founder for sure. What are the what are the the pro and con that you've saw? I mean, I think it's just lonely. It's lonely to be a solo founder. Um, you just um, you uh, you need to talk things out as you grow and do sanity checks and and have another voice in the room. 
uh, this beyond your core, like actually job or what you're doing or what responsibilities you've taken on. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. If you're doing this for years, it's uh, it's lonely to to not have that have that other person there. Um, that's the biggest one. Um, I think the the feedback cycle gets a lot tighter the second time around as well. So when I see something's off, you know, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach and you dig in and something's off. We're much more quick to act now than I was at my first company where, um, you know, you held on to ideas for a little longer because you're like, I don't know what to like, like, you know, inertia kind of sets in. I think, uh, the more you operate as a startup person, the more you're, you're, uh, you, you understand like, Data, if something's off, it's just going to get become a bigger problem and you have to fix it. Mm-hmm. If you wait, it's just the problem just compounds, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think that those are the two biggest kind of... Is it because from your first experience, you have collect a lot of data in your database, in your brain to, to see the pattern? Sure. Yeah, well, there's, a, yeah, there's your sixth sense uh, feeling. <laughs> And then there's just like an operating manual for startups that you just, you know, you get with experience too, which is more objectively like trust the data, make sure that you're validating all your assumptions, things like that. Um, And then, yeah, then there's the founder sixth sense. (laughs) Uh Do you think the first time you feel like more, I don't, I feel like being an entrepreneur, you have to be hard headed, like stubborn, but then at the same time knows when to direction yeah no i mean i think um it's it, it's you, you have to be able to basically be super passionate and never give up but also be able to iterate so if something like no amount of stubbornness will solve a bad business model or bad idea um if you believe if if the data shows it's a good business model you can work on it for for years and you know it's good you're going to hit it eventually, right? Or, or, or run out of steam. But um, if your core assumptions are off, uh, multiplying that times 10 is not going to make those core assumptions be <laughs> resolved. <laughs> so you have to make sure that um, you're able to iterate and pivot. So, I mean, we pivoted from being a direct-to-consumer virtual primary company to this like on-demand clinician network serving you know hundreds of clients. It's... Mm-hmm. It's a, um, and we saw a strong signal and we leaned into it. So it's just like you have to develop that, that skill set. And, uh, help us understand about when you say strong signal and how do you get that strong signal? Where do you get that information? How do you, how do you seek out that information? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at what assets you have, um, and you start trying to sell a product, let's say, if every time you're on a call with someone, they're asking about something else. They're saying like, what about the tech? Like you're selling a service. They say, what about this? just the technology? Uh, listen for those signals um, or listen for like whatever thing. What have you built that people are really interested in and impressed with and have a willingness to pay, right? Mm-hmm. And so we built an incredible technology and an incredible clinical operation. Uh, both of which could have been pivots. We could have just been, just been a tech company. Or, and so... But the signal was to the clinical operation was the thing that people were really valuing when we were talking to people about our partnering, our company, our, our virtual primary care business. Um, it was really clear that everyone was having the same problems. We just listened. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, it's not easy to do because 
we had a very good consumer business. It was a solid business, really good numbers, but um, we realized the market really needed what we had in terms of the, the assets we built to support that business. So were you trying to hedge at that time? At some point, you tried to do both? Once we pivoted, we licensed the, um, the, the consumer business to another company, uh, which didn't, wasn't like easy. It's not like flipping a light switch, but we made the effort to do that. And now um, it's called it's Lemonade Primary Care now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you go to Lemonade Health and click Primary Care, that's our old consumer business. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. So now this is your second uh, adventure. And I'm sure throughout both this adventure, you have make a lot of, uh, I don't know, want to say mistake. It's like, you know, it's you did not know what you didn't know. Sure. Yeah. And now you know better. What yeah. are the three do's and three don't? I'd say going back to what I said earlier, like the founders. Yeah, be well, be really diligent about experimenting and uh, trusting the data that comes from those experiments. Um, we had ideas we loved. We just loved them. We thought they would be amazing, and they just didn't work. You know, um, so I think there's that. That's a big one. Um, I'd say um, don't overhire. Um, you know, I think like a lot of times you're like so scared about like not having enough resources, but you can go too far. So I think, um, I think a lot of companies in the, in the market now might have overhired a little bit. And so I think you want to be like right on the edge of, uh, not being understaffed. So you can't fulfill demand if it comes, but, but, uh, but not, not having too many people mainly around the organization. Not, not cause you, they all have stuff to do, but like organizing that many people is, it's not easy. Um, and yeah, Bill, you know, I think those are the two big ones I'd say that I learned in the last year. Um, and, um, you know, I think like one, one other one I'd say for founders out there and anyone in startups, like, which I struggled with for years, kind of is build your network of friends in the space. Meaning, um, I'm shy. I, I'll talk about my company until I'm blue in the face. I'm not shy about that, but like socially, I'm a little more shy. Like I think um, it's important to have like a network of other folks that are in the same stage as you that understand what the heck you're talking about. Like startup, digital health, like you name it. Um, find that like brain trust you can at least like text with or have a quick call or connect with. Uh, if you're missing that. Um, it's actually a nice resource to have, and it's you have to, but you have to work to build it. It's it's not easy. Well, it's not easy for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I try and I try and build those those friendships as well. Um, and that's more of a subjective one, but it's good for mental health and sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I'd say yeah, I'd say trust the data. Um, watch like your operation and how complex it's getting in a short amount of time. So that's either hiring or like org charts or stuff like that. And the last one is. Uh, build out a network, not within your own company or just to raise money, but just of friends in the space that you can talk with. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's the human connection. It's so important. I think, you know, learning from each other, definitely um, the found community that you have, you're part of the community that you can share your uh, challenges that maybe sometimes it's hard for you to, cha- uh, to share with your team when they look up to you. 
to kind of solve every problem. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, so one of the things that, you know, that you've done in the past that now, I mean, you mentioned about, you know, not overhiring and how, you know, how do you know what is the right number? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think like if you, if you have a, and this is not easy, especially the earlier you are, the harder this is, but if you know your business really well and you know, X resources go into closing Y deals, which leads to Z volume. Um, and you work really hard at that. You can predict your needs and also have levers and signals ahead of the time if you need to step. Uh, let's re- let's let's not say over hire. Let's just say like overcomplicate things with you know with with operations. Um, I think you. Sometimes uh, you get a, you, you get a little ahead of the game, and sometimes you're behind, and like it's a balance there. But the more structured you are in understanding your business cycle, the more the easier it is to predict stuff like that. And then you have levers that go up or down based on uh, mm-hmm. based on that. So I'd say like work hard on validating your assumptions about how the business works. Rarely, I mean, every once in a while you get the lotto ticket customer that like springs up in a month's notice that. It's huge, and you're like, okay, and you just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in your normal course of business, you you should work that predictability. Um, and we're working really hard to 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 do that here to make sure that um, we have the right organization to support our clients. Yeah, and uh, no, that's uh, it's uh, I think sometimes, especially as the organization get bigger as well, and it's as a managed, you know. You know, if you're in a top manager, you have to re- rely on information from your uh, your subordinates to provide you the right information as well. And I think there's sometimes things get lost in translation, and sometimes you kind of overestimate the need of hiring. I think that often happens. And how do you stay connected? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's it's like a, um, it's just balancing the right uh, right org you need to support your business. So. We are, we're all learning and moving really fast and growing really fast. So I think um, it takes a lot of time and attention to make sure you nail that correctly, specifically on the clinician side. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you don't want to. Uh, one thing clinicians hate is being put on a project and there's no volume. That's like it doesn't matter if you're paying them; they really don't like that because they don't feel productive. Want to make sure that you're staffing that correctly. So now that your company is growing. That's another thing that you talk about culture. How do you ensure the culture is intact to how you want? I think like it starts with like, you have to, if you're coming into study MD, you have to see this as like an opportunity to change the world. I mean, what, what could be a bigger idea than we're going to redefine what it means to be a clinician. It affects everyone. Every single person in the world is affected by this idea. And uh, it starts with that. If it's just a job, um, you could probably do your function, but it's not going to be fun. It's fun if you're like, wow, like I'm enabling innovation to get into the hands of many more patients than otherwise would. And you kind of have a smile, you know, smile that things are complicated and hard because that means we're solving a cool problem and having patients get to connect with clinicians. If that's your attitude, 
that starts from there. And then everything else is like, is, is, uh, you know, we have a good culture, like operationally, um, or we're actually, you know, we're always trying to do that. But, um, I think it like starts with that core principle. If you come in with that attitude, you have a, you know, that, that that's, that's really what uh, binds us all together. Right. Right. Do you have some sort of indoctrination for like all the, you know, new employee hire? Um, I mean, nothing, not, nothing, nothing to note on this podcast, but of course we have onboardings and, and all the ways that we welcome new team members and clinicians and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. No, that, that's great. Uh, on a last note, uh, one of the things that I want to ask you, you know, sometimes you go through, you know, when you built something like this, amazing, you go through a lot of hard time. What is the mantra that you tell yourself to keep going? You can't fail if you don't give up. You can never fail if you don't. If you don't give up, you never fail. <laughs> so just keep going. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Guy. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.